Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 131, and we're going to talk about everyone's favorite topic, batteries. More batteries. Everyone gets a battery, except not for me. you got to pay for it yourself, but I'm going to help you pick the best one. We're also going to talk about old cell phones and some of the surprising things you can do with them. A tale from the road involving me in a hurricane on the outside of a ship and a place to visit that is, well, all the auroras in the United States and what happened to that project. Remember that? Remember I used to talk about all the auroras? Yeah, we'll get into that. But first, let's talk about batteries. Your battery is the beating heart of your rig, and we have batteries in the back of our vans for a very simple reason, which is that we don't want to kill the battery that starts the engine. In fact, the battery that starts the engine should be held as sacred. The only thing this battery does is start your van. Don't use it for anything else while the van is off. That is really a good mentality to have, no matter what kind of a rig you're driving. So you need a battery for the back of your van. And I've talked about batteries a lot. In fact, everybody who talks about vans talks about batteries a lot. But stuff has changed. Things are a bit different than when I first started doing this. When I first built my NV200, I couldn't afford a lithium battery, and now the landscape has changed such that lithium batteries are much more affordable. In fact, they're so affordable that I think you should just plan on having a lithium battery. But before we get into recommendations, let's just start with the basics here. There are three kinds of batteries people use in the back of their van. Of course, there's like probably a hundred, but we're going to stick with the main three. The first is the lead acid battery. This is the old fashioned battery that's been around forever. It's the kind that probably starts your rig and it's a bunch of cells filled with lead and a liquid that's an acid, hence the name. And they're fairly inexpensive, and one would wonder why I just don't go to the auto parts store and pick up another starter battery and throw it in the back. Well, you can do that, and in fact, a lot of RVs did that for years. But those batteries aren't designed for the kind of power usage we have in the back of our vans. They're designed to start an engine, which is a massive thing to do. I mean, they basically have to run your engine off of a battery, and that's a lot of work. So they're designed to discharge a whole lot of power at once and then recharge as the engine runs. That's not really how we use power in the back. In the back, we use power gradually and more or less. I mean, if you're going to cook or something, you're going to draw more power. But more or less, we use gradual power and we want to use all the power we can. A lead-acid battery under the hood, basically, you should only take that down to 50% of its capacity. And that you can think of that 50% as an emergency reserve. Because if you go past that 50%, you will damage a lead-acid battery. Your starter battery is configured for this. Your car knows this. And yeah, you can take it down past its optimal point of recharging. But if you do, you risk damaging it. And sometimes that's worth it if you're stuck on the side of the road. But we don't want to do that in the back. So they do make lead-acid batteries that are designed for this gradual use, and they're called either a deep-cycle battery or a marine battery, because marine usage is almost the same as how we use the batteries in the back. 
And you can still find these today. They're very, very common and they will work just fine. But in my opinion, it's the worst option right now. If cost is your number one factor, you really are on the tightest budget possible you could consider a deep cycle marine battery. However, I think if you're going to do this, you really should take a look at using the golf cart batteries that they sell at Costco and other places. These are massive six volt batteries. And what you do is you take two of these, wire them in series and give yourself one massive 12 volt battery. Cost per amp hour, that is the cheapest way to go. But there are some pretty hefty trade-offs. Yes, you're going to save money, but you're going to need to maintain these batteries over time. Again, they're filled with a liquid. That liquid can evaporate, so you have to maintain the liquid levels with distilled water. That can be a pain in the butt. They can also freeze from time to time, although that's not really a big concern unless you're in the coldest areas. And they're heavy super heavy. Each one of those batteries could easily weigh a hundred pounds. So somewhere in the back of your rig, you're going to have to have space for two massive batteries weighing 200 pounds. So you have to weigh. If money's your big thing, okay, you're going to deal with that. But if you've got some extra money, and I really hope you do, you're going to want to look at one of these other options. The next level up is called AGM, which stands for Absorptive Glass Mat. And it's the same basic design as a lead acid battery, except in this case, the liquid is absorbed in a mat and that prevents it from evaporating and sloshing around. I mean, you can tip over a lead acid battery, a wet cell battery, and the stuff can leak out. <laughs> That's not good. That doesn't happen with AGM batteries. Now, AGM batteries do cost a little bit more than your standard lead acid batteries, but not that much more. You can find them in the same range and they have a similar rate of discharge. But both AGM batteries and lead acid batteries have another problem, which is that they don't last that long. You're typically looking at three to four years of use out of these. And you know, how long are you going to keep your van for? I mean, if you're building a van to do this one big trip across the country, well, you're not going to be doing that for three or four years, unless you're the combi life guy who took 10 years to go from the southern tip of South America to Alaska. It can work. My first rig, I had AGM batteries in it and it worked just fine. But the whole time I had really wished that I had lithium batteries and that's where it's at now. Just in the past two years, the landscape of lithium batteries has changed drastically. There's a new chemistry, relatively new, it's called lithium iron phosphate, and it is by far the best battery chemistry we have had in the mass market for our use. Folks, if you're looking at batteries, please take a long, hard look at getting a lithium battery because they're lighter. You can discharge more power out of them before they can be damaged. They can last as much as 10 years. You can discharge and charge them 2,000, 4,000 times. They're just the perfect battery for what we're doing. And yes, they do cost a lot more money, but you're also getting a lot more for it. And Honestly, I think when all things are considered, lithium is the way to go. But it's not simple. Lithium has a lot of weird options, and they're not always obvious. You can look at a 200 amp hour battery that's $650, and then look at another one that's $1,300, and not really know the difference unless you understand how these things work. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Now, when you buy a lead acid or AGM battery, you're getting basically a plastic box that when you hook wires up to it, power comes out. That's it. That's all they do. Lithium batteries are similar, except that if you were to open that box, what you would see in there is some circuitry 
and some sensors and a whole bunch of little batteries <laughs> because even Teslas are this way. Lithium batteries are made out of much smaller batteries all wired together and that's how your lithium battery would be in your van. That circuitry in there is called the BMS. This is the battery management system and the battery management system is the main thing that's going to drive the price of your battery. Case in point, for my ambulance, I bought a 200 amp hour ampere time battery. It was about 700 bucks as I remember, and I think you can get it for maybe six, 650 now. Not a bad battery, honestly. It's 200 amp hours, that's a whole lot of power for something that doesn't weigh all that much or take up that much space compared to lead acid. And compared to the 70 amp hours of AGM I had in my last van, it's a ton of power. So why would I go and spend over $1,000 for a Battleborn or a Renergy or some other kind of battery? Well, I quickly learned why. The BMS in that ampere time battery is the most basic thing it could possibly be. Yes, it will protect the battery from over temperature, it will protect the battery from overcharging, and it will protect the battery from shorting circumstances. BMSs can detect if there's a short in the system and actually turn off the battery, and then you have to actually apply 12 volts to the battery to get it to turn back on. That's a nice safety feature, but they all have that. What it doesn't have is some of the things that I decided I really want. First thing is the C-rate. The C-rate is the rate of discharge, how much power you can get out of your battery at once. So it's usually, usually the same as the number of amp hours. So if you get a 100 amp hour battery, the C-rate is usually 100 amps. On this inexpensive 200 amp hour battery, the C-rate is actually only 100 amps. So even though it's a 200 amp hour battery, I can only take 100 amps at a time. Now, for most people and most uses, that's plenty. 100 amps is a whole lot of power, and that would be more than enough to charge all your devices and watch TV and play Xbox and power your lights and fans and all that stuff. But I put a microwave oven in my van. A controversial thing for sure, but I decided that I wanted to have a microwave. It's just something I'm used to, and it's a comfort thing, and heck, I had the space for it. Well, this 200 amp hour battery really struggles to power the microwave. Now, I did a video on two different kinds of microwaves. I, I compared the cheapest IKEA microwave to the cheapest commercial chef microwave, and the commercial chef microwave is actually better for vans because it draws less power. But I ended up going with the IKEA because I like the way it looked. I'm sorry, I don't often choose things on aesthetics, but this time I did. And unfortunately, even though all the specs look right, the battery keeps shutting off when I try to use the microwave. And the problem is the C-rate. I can look at my monitor and see that when I start the microwave, it is drawing so much power from the inverter that it's exceeding 100 amps and the battery is shutting off. The other problem is, is that in cold weather, that is weather that's below freezing, you can use a lithium battery just fine. But if you try to charge it at those temperatures, you can actually damage it. And my battery's BMS is not smart enough to know this. So I live in Chicago where, you know, good 40, 50, 60 days out of the year, it's below freezing. If I just leave the van out in the parking lot with the solar panels on, I could actually be damaging it. And I'm not thrilled with damaging hundreds of dollars worth of battery just because I forgot to flip a switch. Enter the Renogy. 
prices have dropped enough that I've decided that I'm actually going to invest in a Renogy 200 amp hour battery. <laughs> Another factor of this is that the batteries in my Tiki Bago are wearing out. So I'm actually going to take the 200 amp hour ampere time battery out of my ambulance and put it in the Tiki Bago. So you see how this works. So what I ended up getting, and I do think this is among the optimal choices you can make is a 200 amp hour Renogy battery with an advanced BMS. Now this BMS does everything that I've ever heard of a BMS doing. It does the basic overcharge, over temperature, short circuit thing. They all do that. But it will also detect low temperature and stop charging. And it has built in Bluetooth. That means I can actually hook my phone up to the battery and it will tell me everything I need to know about the battery, what the temperature is, how much the discharge is, how much capacity is left. I mean, this removes the need for all kinds of gauges and wiring and it just simplifies everything. So I haven't gotten it yet. I will give a full review of it, but I do think this is the optimal way to go. Now it cost me a thousand dollars for this Renogy 200 amp hour battery. And I know Renogy does not have the greatest customer service reputation currently, but they do make quality equipment and I'm fairly confident that I'm going to be able to make this thing work. But it's 200 amp hours. You may not need that much. You can save several hundred dollars if you go for a 100 amp hour battery. And that's where I recommend folks begin. If you're just getting started in this, take a look at 100 amp hour lithium batteries. If you're going to have a low use situation where you know you're not going to run a microwave or anything super fancy, or you're just sticking with 12 volts, go ahead and get one of the cheap ones. The Ampere Time, the SOKs, the Chins, any of those they're gonna work just fine for you. If you're gonna use an inverter and maybe actually draw some power from time to time, you're gonna want a better BMS. You're gonna to wanna to check that C rate and make sure it's the highest it can possibly be. And if you want to future-proof, make sure you look and see if you can add capacity. Now, the dirty little secret of Renogy batteries is that you can't wire them in series. If I wanted to go to a 24-volt system for some reason, I could not use this Renogy battery and simply add another one. It won't work. The BMS won't let it. I can add more capacity, though. If I wanted to add another 200 amp-hours of battery, I could get a cheaper Renogy battery with a simpler BMS and then wire them together in parallel, and that one BMS would take over for both of them. So, these days, lithium is the way to go, if you can afford it. If you've only got a couple hundred dollars for a battery and that's the best you can do, look at AGM. But other than that, lithium, 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 lithium. Until they come up with something new, which they continue to do. Tech Talk. So, you've got an old cell phone. I mean, almost all of us have an old cell phone because cell phones, you got to buy a new one every two years, right? Well, actually, you don't, but a lot of us do, and we tend to have these things laying around. So, what good are they? I mean, what can you use them for? There are three things you can use these for that I think it's, is super handy. The first thing you can use them for is emergency calls. That's right. In the U.S., at least, all cell phones can call 911 regardless if they have a plan or not. Now, back up a step here. You still need to have cell phone service. If you're in the middle of nowhere with no service, the cell phone isn't going to be calling anyone ever at all. But if you're in an area with service, 
you can use a phone, even without a SIM card, to call 911. So I think it's a good idea to take your old cell phone and a charger and just throw them in the glove box. That way, if your other phone gets broken or you're in some weird emergency situation, you at least have a way to call for help. And heck, that's worth a lot, actually. It's a really good use for an old cell phone. Another thing is called many thing. That's the word anything with an M in the front, many thing. And this is a free slash subscription service that will turn any cell phone into a webcam, then that can be used as a security camera. It will basically turn on the camera on your phone, and if anything passes in front of it, it will take a picture of it and text it to you, or send you a video, or you can log into it and just see what it sees. Now, obviously, you need some kind of service for this to work, but most cell phones use Wi-Fi. So if you have a Wi-Fi source, you can use an old cell phone as a security camera, and you can put it anywhere you want. I keep talking about putting security cameras outside your van. Well, an old cell phone would work perfect for that. And if it gets stolen, uh, it's not the end of the world. It's your old cell phone. But you can also you know, do weird things to disguise it, too. I mean, think about it. It's not that hard to hide a cell phone. So that's another good use for it. And the third and final use for it is to have it be your media center. So I use CarPlay, but there are times when I'm annoyed that my main phone is tied up to my stereo and I can't use it for other things. Not while I'm driving, while I'm stopped usually. And if I unplug the cell phone, then the whole system resets and it's just kind of a pain. So you could use an old cell phone as kind of your media center. It's the one you hook up to use CarPlay or Android Auto for. It gets its internet from your cell phone. It, it uses your cell phone like a hotspot. And then you've got your phone free. You can do whatever you want with it. Say you're traveling with a passenger and you see something you want to take a picture of. Well, you can just hand your phone to them and say, hey, take a picture of that for me, instead of unplugging the whole system. I, it's a limited use case, but I am going to try it out with, I, I actually have a new old phone. It's an old track phone. I'm going to try it out and see how it works, because I've ever, never actually experienced Android Auto, and I'm curious to see what it's like. So... Your old cell phone has value. That's all there is to it. And if you really don't know what to do with it, there are plenty of places where you can drop your phone and they will send it to troops overseas or some other recycling thing. Throwing it in the trash is probably not the best thing to do. Tales from the road. So I am going to Antarctica, and I'm thinking very much about that trip, and the Drake Passage is heavy on my mind, because I'm someone who is susceptible to motion sickness to some degree, and apparently everybody gets seasick on this passage. And the only other time I've been seasick on a ship was the story I'm about to tell you. Now, I've been on a lot of cruises. 40? I don't. I have lost count. I've probably been on 40 cruises. I've been on lots of ships. I've spent a lot of time at sea. And I've only gotten seasick once. And it was on a trip on the Jewel of the Seas from Boston to Bermuda. Now, if you're familiar with geography, Bermuda is actually pretty far north and pretty far out in the Atlantic. It's all by itself. And it's nowhere near the Caribbean or the Bahamas. People think it is, but it's not. It's out there in the North Atlantic, some of the roughest seas in the world. Uh, and as we found out, they get even rougher during a hurricane. <laughs> we actually were in a hurricane on this ship by accident. It's not that the captain sailed us right into a hurricane. It's that the captain made the decision to go to Bermuda when the hurricane had a radically different track 
And by the time we had committed to going to Bermuda, because again, it's all by itself, there's nowhere else you can go, the hurricane twisted and followed us, and we ended up catching the tail end of it. Now, the highest speed winds I saw were about 95 miles an hour. That's fast enough. And uh, most cruise ships never experience wind of that type. But I did, and I experienced it in the worst possible way. When I started getting seasick, I went and got some bonine, which is like Dramamine. It's, you know, it's a pill you take. And it worked really well, actually. And within half an hour, I felt much better, but I felt very, very sleepy. And I was also a little bit hot. So I laid down on the deck by one of the outdoor cafes, and I was just kind of enjoying the storminess of it. Now, this wasn't the height of the storm. It was just a little bit windy and stormy and gray, and it was kind of pretty. And I ended up falling asleep. And about half an hour later, I woke up and I realized there was nobody else out there and that the waves and wind had gotten a lot worse. Like there were waves actually washing over the ship at this point. And if you've ever seen a cruise ship, that's pretty high up. So I thought maybe I should go inside. And I went to the door that I had come through and it was locked. And I could see that there was a sign on it on the inside, but of course I was on the outside and I could only assume that that sign said deck closed. All right, no big deal. So I walked down the deck and went to the next door and it was also locked. And I went to the next door and it was also locked. And I went completely around the ship and all the doors on that deck were locked. I couldn't find a way back into the ship. So I thought, well, all right, I'll go upstairs because there's a, if, if you've ever been on a cruise ship, there's many decks and there's many ways into the ship. So I was sure I was going to find a way in. I went up to the very top deck in the wind and rain, by this time I'm soaking wet, and I go into the cafe up there, a coffee shop, kind of a thing called Johnny Rockets. I don't think they have them anymore on ships, but back then they did. And that door was open, and I go into the Johnny Rockets, and I'm like, oh, finally, I'm here. And there were some crew members there, and I said, whew, you know, the doors are all locked. I had no way to get into the ship. How do I get to the rest of the ship? And they said they couldn't. <laughs> They were trapped there. They couldn't get into the rest of the ship, and neither could I, because that Johnny Rockets, the way it was configured, it was kind of like its own little building on top of the ship. And they sent me back out into the storm. And I'm just like, how can this be? <laughs> how can they close the deck and actually leave somebody outside in a hurricane? So eventually, after circling around the different decks, I did find a door that wasn't open. It was broken. <laughs> it couldn't be locked. And I managed to squeeze my way through there. And uh, yeah, I'd like if I had gone overboard, they wouldn't have known for a day. <laughs> it was, it was kind of shocking that that could even happen. You would think they'd have cameras or something and see that there's somebody wandering around the deck. But uh, yeah, no, apparently not. Then things got a little bit more interesting. Our cabin was on deck three, way at the front of the ship, and that's one of the lowest decks. And we didn't have a balcony, we just had a porthole. It was this big, round, big, round porthole. Like, it was big enough that you could sit in. Porthole isn't really the right thing. It was a big, round window. And then there was a knock on the door, and, like, six crew members came in with this giant aluminum disc with handles on it. And they just said, oh, excuse us, folks, we have to put this in. And we're like, what? the heck is going on and they couldn't really figure out how to attach it but finally they did after scratching up the walls and everything and they basically covered our window with this aluminum plate and we asked like so why is that there and they said oh that's in case the glass breaks it'll slow down the flooding have a nice day bye <laughs> and they walked out 
Uh, and to be fair, before they did that, that window was mostly underwater. Like, we couldn't see fish swimming, but it looked like you were looking into a washing machine. It was it was quite the experience, actually, and uh, we could watch the deck cam. There, there was a camera on the front of the ship from the bridge, and we could watch that on the TV. And we saw waves going over the camera, which meant over the entire ship. Later on, we learned that the dining rooms were empty that night. Most of the ship was seasick, and there was actually a little bit of damage as liquor cabinets fell over and things like that. And it was, it was a pretty big deal. It was definitely the worst storm I'd ever been on a ship. Although apparently, Drake Passage, that's normal, and that's what I'm looking into. So uh, word to the wise, uh, don't go into hurricanes on a cruise ship. Not that you're going to have any control over that. And uh, yeah, don't get locked outside. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes stuff's just going to happen, and you can thank modern engineering that these stories don't end up much worse than they did. Product review. Folks, I'm a fan of DEET. DEET, the stuff that keeps mosquitoes away. I know it's gotten a bad reputation over the years, and I know it has some issues with, like, melting plastic and things like that. But honestly, the stuff is safe and it works, and that's what all of science and all the studies say. So if you're trying to get rid of mosquitoes and ticks, DEET does work. But it's still a little uncomfortable. I mean, I happen to like the smell of deep woods off. It reminds me of summer camp as a kid. But I'm not a big fan of the oily residue it leaves on your skin. I mean, you put it on you, and you just, like, feel oily. And it, I don't know, especially if it's hot out, it's kind of gross. But we did discover this new product called Deep Woods Off Dry. And it is dry. It really is. If you, When you spray this stuff on, there's no oiliness. It goes on like a powder. Now, it isn't a powder. It doesn't, like, leave any white residue or anything. But just all that oiliness is gone, and its effectiveness seems to be exactly the same. So if you're the kind of person who's in mosquito-y areas, as we are a lot now that we have this property on the river, give this stuff a try. Deep Woods Off Dry. It's effective and much, much more comfortable. I've got a link in the show notes, but the pricing honestly isn't very good. But And I know you can get this at Walmart for a fairly good price, but just look for it. It's the same can of Off, except it's a light green color rather than a dark green color. Deep Woods Off Dry. I am a fan. A place to visit. Well, I used to talk about this a lot, and uh, well, now I don't. And that is that the fact that I, in my van, visited every place in the United States and one place in Canada named Aurora. 22, 23, depends on how you count, but I went all over the country with my van, and just, if there was a town or city named Aurora, I visited it. And then, I started to do it again in 2021. And then halfway through, I stopped. And the reason I stopped is that I just didn't have it in me to continue. It wasn't that I was tired. It wasn't that I wasn't interested. It was that what I had started the project to do was actually backfiring. It was doing the opposite. I started to visit every Aurora so I could find the commonality in what makes someone an American. Obviously, we're a very divided country right now. I thought maybe if I would get out of my city life and go into rural areas, I could start to see that, hey, you know, city people, rural people, they're not all that different, really. We disagree on a few things, but honestly, we have these core values that make us Americans, and that's not what I found. No, in fact, what I found was the thing that we have in common is the division. We have an other. 
It's just that we're each other's other. And I, it, it, the contrast between visiting these places in 2019 and 2021 was just how much larger that division had grown. And I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a blog, a post, an article, whatever you call these things, on Medium about my experience in every one of these auroras. And you're welcome to go and read these articles if you'd like. I'll put a link in the show notes. I've got two articles up now, and then I'm going to do Missouri. I should have that done this week. But I warn you, these articles do contain politics and probably some religion and some of the things that I avoid talking about on this podcast because I want the podcast just to be as inclusive as possible. I'm not shy about stating my opinions, but I'm not going to go on any kind of political rant. I might do that <laughs> in these blog posts because it's relevant. So if you're curious about the Aurora Project, which I call Aurora Americanus, go to medium.com and search on Aurora Americanus or search on my name, Jeff Wagg, or just click the link in the show notes. But don't feel obligated and, you know, be cautious because if you're the kind of person that will be turned off by somebody else's politics, well, I'd hate for that to happen and then for you to lose the ability to listen to this podcast. But I do have a lot to say and, and some of it's interesting and I hope poignant. Resource Recommendation I've done this a few times and I think it's fun and I, I haven't done it in any big way, but I could see myself doing it. And that is magnet fishing. You may have heard of this. It's gotten a lot of press lately and it's also a lot of, it's on YouTube. It's huge on YouTube. Magnet fishing is a big phenomenon on YouTube, but it's exactly what it sounds like. Instead of fishing for fish with a hook, you fish for metal things with a magnet. And the idea is that rivers and coastal areas end up accumulating all kinds of stuff that you can pull up with a magnet. And it's true. I mean, you can go on any bridge over any river and drop a magnet in there and you'll pull up something. Now, it's not always good things. Most of the time, what you're going to get is old nails and scraps of metal and, and just garbage. But sometimes you'll find something interesting and people have found bicycles and stereos and ancient swords and all kinds of things. And it's just, it's kind of just this like slot machine of reality where you pull the lever and you see what you get. And it doesn't cost that much to get into and you can do it anywhere there's water. You will want a, a strong magnet and then a strong cord. You're really not going to use a fishing rod for this. You're going to use something stronger because some of the stuff you pull up might be quite heavy. And if you try this, know that what you're going to pull up is a lot of stuff that's not very nice. So you'll want to have some gloves. And I implore you, I implore you to take ownership of everything you pull up. That means if you pull something up and it's not something you want, too bad, you own it, you deal with it. So that's kind of the contract you should have when you're doing magnet fishing. Don't leave trash that you pulled up on the side of the river or on a bridge or whatever. This has caused problems in the UK and they've actually outlawed magnet fishing in some areas because of the mess it's made. So you could also look at it as like a cleanup project where you're helping to clean these rivers. It can be kind of fun. It's a great thing to do with kids and uh, I've had fun doing it and I think you might too. So I have a link in the show notes to a, an article, a, a very generic article about how to fish and what the concept is and, and a link to kind of the type of magnet you're looking for. But hey, it's just something else you can do while you're traveling around the country in your van. 
Thanks once again for listening to this episode 131. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. If you'd like to get a hold of me, I am Jeff Wagg at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Until next time, remember the words of Martin Luther King Jr. We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope.